Okay, saints of the Most High, I have a little bit of bad news. Um, as we know, if you were here um, on Wednesday at the table uh, when I taught, we had some iPod issues, namely the iPod didn't have any power. And so I recorded on um, Miss e- Mrs. Eggleston's phone, and the audio just wasn't very good. So we're trying again. So here I am in my home, in my little apartment, um, and I'll just be preaching to myself, which I'm not a stranger to. I uh, talk to myself often. So, um, let's get started. I will pray, and then we will um, jump into the lesson. Father God, I am grateful for the opportunity of just speaking the truth about who your Son is, and I ask that as we study him in this hour, that you might grant that our eyes would be open to see Jesus as he is, his person, his uniqueness, his beauty, and not just to see Jesus as a concept with a name on it. Um, A concept of Jesus cannot save us, but love toward his person uh, will save us uh, by the working of your Holy Spirit. So I pray that by your Spirit you would grant that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you would guard me from error and that I would uh, teach your people uh, what you would have them to know. Uh, Because apart from your teaching efficacy, Lord, um, this lesson means absolutely nothing. So I pray that the teacher would teach as the teacher teaches. I pray all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God forever and ever. Amen. So, to start out our lesson, um, in my notes, I asked the question, Why is this section of the Creed so long. Um, Because I have been studying the long version of this creed, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed, uh, kind of right after I became a, if you want to call it, convert uh, to Trinitarianism out of modalism, and I'll talk about what modalism is a little bit later unless I forget. Um, But I used to be a modalist, which means, I'll just define it right now, uh, it means that I believe that God existed as one person who acted like a father in one instance, namely uh, creation, and then in redemption he acted like a son, and then in sanctification he acts like a spirit, or the spirit. And so it's not that there are three distinct persons who um, share in the one essence that is God, but it is that it's the one person of God who puts on different masks in order to deal with his creation, and that is heresy. Uh, It's a part of the reason why uh, the Council of Nicaea was convened. It was a part of the reason why the Council of Chalcedon was convened uh, to refute that error among others, and I was a modalist. Now, I didn't know I was a modalist until I came to college, and then one of my friends pointed out that I didn't believe the doctrine of the Trinity, And thanks to the Holy Spirit's work in people like Ryan Vincent, uh, I became a Trinitarian after reading the scriptures. And in that, uh, I say that my Trinitarian phase was kind of like, and is 
kind of like my uh, early Calvinist phase where, you know, when I became a Calvinist, as when many people become Calvinists, you have what's called a stage, a cage stage of Calvinism, which is when you're just like, rah, 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 total depravity, rah, 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 rah. and so I was kind of that way with, um, <laughs> with Trinitarianism, and so I'm reading these, this creed, and I'm studying it, and I'm really angry because the section, I, I did the math, and um, the entirety of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which I call the ultimate Pokemon evolution of the Apostles' Creed, um, the, the full Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed is, I think, 174 words in Greek. And out of all of those 174 words, only, I think, 10% are dedicated to describing who the Father is. I think 16% is dedicated to describing who the Spirit is. Um, and then 12, about 12% is dedicated to talking about miscellaneous, other theological and doctrinal things like the resurrection and life everlasting and the church. And then a whopping 66 plus percent is dedicated to the person of Jesus. And so, knowing what I then knew and still know about the doctrine of the Trinity, it, uh, it states, our doctrine states, that um, the persons who share in the Godhead are um, distinct from one another, but they are equal in glory and majesty and eternity and divinity. And so I was really angry because I was like, okay, so why when we recite the creed, we talk so much about Jesus? Not that I have anything against Jesus, I love Jesus, but why do we talk so much about Jesus in the creed and so little about the Father and the Spirit? And I think one of the reasons, and we'll back into this, um, it's because of what is called the uh, economic trinity. Um, and let me explain what that means. The economic trinity is the doctrine that the trinity, which is that God exists as a singular, infinite being whose essence is simple, that means undivided, it can't be parsed or parted, um, and that single essence is shared by three distinct persons. So that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. They are each individual persons who fully share and do not parse the divine essence. That's why I have, I tell people I've developed a twitch when I hear people say, Jesus is a part of the Trinity, or the Holy Spirit is a... Um, member of the Trinity, or that the, the, the persons are components of the Trinity, because that suggests partialism. So if Jesus is a part of the Trinity, that means that as a part, say, say, let's say that the Son is a third of the Trinity, that suggests that the Son lacks something which the Father and the Spirit have. If you th they just think about a pie and cut it in thirds. The third that is removed lacks what the other two-thirds has. And likewise, the other two-thirds lack what the third has. And that's not what we believe about the Trinity. Each person in the Trinity fully possesses the deity. 
the being and essence of God. So that it's more appropriate to say that the Son is a person in the Trinity. It is more appropriate to say that the Spirit shares in the unity of the Godhead. Um, but the divine essence is singular and unparsed by the three persons who possess the Godhead. Uh, but, so that's the Trinity, the one, three, and one. The economy of the Trinity is the doctrine that though the persons who possess the divine essence are equal in authority, in majesty, and eternity, in deity, um, and any other thing you want to throw in there, as long as it's not heretical, um, they have different functions with respect to creation. So I'll give you some examples. In creation itself, the Father commands creation, the Son executes creation, and the Spirit uh, communicates the creative impulse between the Father and the Son. In redemption, which we might be a little more familiar with, according to 1 Peter 1, the Father foreknows or decrees redemption, the Son obtains redemption through the sprinkling of His blood, and the Spirit applies redemption through sanctification. There's also an economy of prayer. The Father, I, I developed this so that all of the words could end with eight, so the Father terminates prayer, that means the chain of prayer ends with the Father, the Son mediates prayer, and the Spirit initiates prayer. And if you uh, know me well, or if you're in my small group, or maybe if you sat beside me in church, um, I can be a little bit of a Pharisee about this because, you know, every time I hear somebody uh, up at the front of the church say, you know, Father, we just thank you because of blah, 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 and it's in your name I pray. And I, well, doubtless, if I know you, usually, I, I won't say this if I'm sitting next to somebody that I don't know, but I will lean over to this person that I know and I'll say, okay, so are we praying in the Father's name or are we praying in the Son's name? Because there is a correct way to pray. Jesus said, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name. Or some other place says, praying to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a proper way, not saying that God won't, just, God won't hear your prayer if you don't pray that way, but there is a proper recognition of the economy of the persons of the Godhead in prayer. So that we pray to the Father through Jesus Christ by His Spirit. Okay. Not only is there an economy in prayer, but there's also an economy in revelation, and that's going to help with the question that I posed. Because it is the Father who is the one who is revealed. And it is the Spirit who is the revelator. He reveals. The Son, however, is Himself the revelation. He is the one who reveals who God is. Now, why might this be significant? Because a part of the reason why the creed is so the well the reason why the creeds were formed were to be instructive and apologetic they were to teach us things about god that were to be believed and to correct errors that had been promulgated about god which means that 
the um, content of the creed shows the amount, really, of errors that have been taught by heresiarchs and heretics about God. Which means, if we look at the creeds, more heresies have been levied against the person of the Son than the other two persons in the Trinity. Why might this be? Well, a, a reason why is because Jesus himself is unique. Uh, the book of John, the gospel, according to John, uses the term monogenes to describe Jesus. Monogenes means, uh, translated in the old King James, it's the only begotten. But, as uh, Greek scholars have taken a look at the word, the word genes in monogenes has more to do with the word kind than the other Greek word that King James writers thought it was referring to, which is genao, though they're really related. So more than it is an only begotten-ness referring to the origin of the Son with relationship to the Father, though it still holds that idea, uh, it's referring to the uniqueness. That's why the Amplified Version of the Bible and a lot of modern versions, you'll read in John uh, 1, I think it's 17 or 18, where it says, the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, it will read the unique Son, or the unique God, because there's a textual variant there, who is in the bosom of the Father, because that word monogenes has to do with the uniqueness of God, of, of the Son. And the uniqueness of the Son is almost, not quite, like the uniqueness of a strawberry, or Jonathan Edwards likes to use the analogy of honey a lot. But a strawberry, you know, if, if you're trying to explain to someone what a strawberry is like and they've never tasted a strawberry, you can say, well, strawberries are really delicious and, and uh, there's, some are sweet and some are sour. And then a person might ask you, so are they sour like, um, like a lemon is sour? No, it's more sour like a strawberry sour. Uh, well, is it sweet like a, like a pineapple is sweet? No, it's more sweet, it's more sweet like, a, like a strawberry sweet. And that's what Jesus is like, except you take that and multiply it by infinity. Uh, so are you saying that Jesus is like a son like I'm a son? No, he's more of a son like Jesus is a son. Are you saying he's a Messiah like the uh, Second Temple Jews thought the Messiah would be? No, he's more like a Messiah like Jesus is the Messiah. Are you saying that he's Lord, you know, like Caesar is Lord and, you know, like certain people are lords over there? No, he's more Lord like Jesus is Lord. And so... Because of his uniqueness, it is hard when a person is um, approached by having to deal with the issue of Jesus that you cannot deal rightly with him until you experience him, which is why to experience and behold Jesus and to savor Jesus, as the book of John in the sixth chapter says, that happens according to the drawing of the Father. It's a miracle that happens in our hearts where the Holy Spirit gives us taste buds and a taste that the Lord is good. And so if we are here today and we can have a deep Amen in our heart when I talk about Jesus being Lord and Jesus being Son and Jesus being Messiah, you ought to know that you are a miracle. That is a miraculous happenstance, that the Spirit has granted you the ability to taste and see that the Lord is good. Hallelujah. But, so, uh, Jonathan Edwards says it like this. 
he says that the thoughts you think about honey are profoundly different between when you touch honey and look at honey than the thoughts you think when you taste honey. And that's what it is when it comes to Jesus. Heretics don't know the thoughts that they should think about Jesus because a lot of people look at Jesus in a figure of speech and a lot of people handle Jesus in a figure of speech but not a lot of people have, by God's grace, tasted Jesus. And so we ought to thank God that He has given us the ability to taste Jesus. Another reason why it's difficult to, uh, why a lot of errors have been promulgated about Jesus is because, just because he's ordinary. He appears on the surface to be so ordinary to us. I mean, come on, you have the Pharisees expecting a kingly Messiah, and here comes someone out of Nazareth. Uh, he's the son of a stonemason. Um, he doesn't have all this much money. He doesn't have a whole bunch of advanced trading. And so you're expecting the Pharisees to believe that this person is the Son of God. And people have to, have to get around that in their minds. And so that, could, that is a viable reason. It can be a part. But I think the base reason why so much heresy exists is because what we have just described about the economy of Christ in Revelation, because the Bible says in Romans 1 that man is so wicked and depraved in his nature that when God reveals himself in nature, in creation, that what do we do? What does the Bible say? It says that we suppress the knowledge of God, the truth that may be known about God, in unrighteousness. And the reason why, it says later, I think in chapter, in verse, excuse me, there aren't 28 chapters in Romans. In verse 28 of chapter 1, it says, because they would not have God in their knowledge, that the man who is fallen in his nature, apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't want God in here. We don't want God in our brains. Whenever we think about thoughts of the true God, we say, get out. I don't want you in my brain. I don't want you here. Get out. And the, and the way we get God out is the Bible describes in Romans 1, we begin to pervert the created order by making idols. We begin to pervert the created order by having um, aberrant sexual expressions. We begin to pervert the created order by taking the image of the glorious creator and making it into images of corruptible animals and beasts. And so God, partially in mercy and partially in justice and judgment and wrath, against us, gives even greater revelation. Because <laughs> to some, that will prove to be a greater condemnation. When you know more of the Bible, that is a great mercy that God has spoken to us in special revelation, which is His further, greater um, revelation than general revelation, which is what we see in nature. And it's a blessing to us. It's a kind condescension but it can also serve to be great judgment for us. That's why the Bible describes that Jews who reject Jesus, like their condemnation is greater. Like he says, woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Why? Because if the works that had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah were done in you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. You have a greater revelation. God gives greater revelation in the scriptures by his prophets and by his apostles. 
well, by his prophets, because we're getting to the sun. And unfortunately, because of the wickedness of men's hearts, I mean, we know if you've ever woken up early at a, to a knock on your door uh, on Saturday morning, you know that there are people who willfully or even ignorantly, because it's not necessarily uh, just a, something that people just do because they're just malicious. Uh, the heart desires to manipulate God's Word so that it serves them. So then you have people um, knocking on your door on Saturday morning telling you to uh, be fear to fear Armageddon that's coming and, and that Jesus is, you know, an exalted spirit creature and that you need to you know, read Watchtower magazines. And so there is special revelation. And then God intensifies his revelation to ultimate revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ is so bright in Revelation, the mind that is hostile to God fights against Jesus more than any other form of Revelation. And that's why I believe there are so many heresies about Jesus. Right now I'm reading, going through um, The Kingdom of the Cults. Uh, I need to um, give that book back to Scott, by the way. But uh, Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin and consistently, every cult that he lists attacks the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is because if you can get the revelation, you can foil the work of the revelator, the spirit. If you can, if you can mar the revelation, you can obscure the person who's revealed, the Father, and you can pretend that you don't have to deal with God. And so that is what heretics intend to do, whether they, they do it wittingly or unwittingly. That is the motive behind that. And so what the Apostolic Fathers and later the Nicene Fathers and the post-Nicene Fathers are doing is defending Christ as the perfect revelation of God based upon what the Scriptures say about Him in order to protect us and the rest of God's fold against the errors of those who rebel against God's word. And so how does, how do the apostolic fathers do that? First of all, the way that they do it is by defining him, we're going to jump into the creed now, they define him as Lord, Son, and Christ, which safeguards us from three different errors. And first we're going to jump into what it means for Jesus to be the Lord. And then we'll move along to talk about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ and what it means for Jesus to be uh, the Son. So what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? There are a few, I think, misconceptions, even among Orthodox Christians. I was reading the Institutes of Christian Religion a few years ago, and I think John Calvin made a similar statement, which I think is somewhat incorrect. The term Lord, generally in the New Testament, is not a term which is used to subordinate the Son. That's how Jehovah's Witnesses use this word. That's how many um, Aryan-type, subordinationist-type 
um, heresies have used this term Lord over the various centuries. They use it to say, okay, so you have the Father who is God, and then you have the Son who is the Lord. So he has this ruling authority, but it's under God. And one of the texts that heretics go to in order to define this is 1 Corinthians, um, the 8th chapter. I'll start at the 5th verse. Let me turn in my Bible there. At 2 Corinthians. Okay. First Corinthians 8, starting at verse 5, says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. Now, hear the argument. They say, see, you see, and it's a pretty tight grammatical argument here. It says, there is one God, and that one God is the Father. And so the argument is, since the Father is the one God, therefore Jesus cannot be the one God. Plus, it says that Jesus is the one Lord. Now, I wish I could have people to respond to this, but... This argument proves too much, because if the Father is the one God to the exclusion of the Son, that would mean that the Son is the one Lord to the exclusion of the Father. And I don't know any, um, I don't know a Mormon, I don't know a Jehovah's Witness, who would say that the Father isn't the Lord. But yet, according to their logic, that is what would have to happen. If Jesus can't be the one God because the Father is the one God, that means, Jesus, that means the Father can't be the one Lord because Jesus is the one Lord. And there's even a further dilemma that I call the Deuteronomy 6-4 dilemma because this section, many scholars agree, pulls from the Greek form of the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6-4, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, you have the attribution of this term theos in the Shema, the Lord our theos, to the Father, and the term Lord, kurios, to Christ. Interestingly enough, the term kurios was used by Greeks in the writing of the Septuagint to um, transliterate or to substitute for the divine name because they didn't want to mispronounce the divine name and thus uh, break the second commandment, second or third commandment. It's in the Bible. It's in Deuteronomy. Um, but they didn't want to break the second commandment or the third commandment and they didn't want to take the name of the Lord in vain, and so they started using the term kurios instead of uh, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or the Tetragrammaton. And so the term kurios is the divine name itself, the unique name, which God says in Isaiah 45 that he will not share with anyone. He won't give his name to another. And here we have the term kurios, which stands for the divine name, being attributed to the Son. But if you contrast this to Deuteronomy 6.4, what happens is very interesting, because here's the dilemma. Deuteronomy 6.4 says there is only one God. 
and that one God is the one Lord. Okay, well, the Father is the one God, which means that the Father is the one Lord. But Jesus is the one Lord. But there's only one Lord. But the one Lord is the one God. So Jesus is God. But there's only one God. But the Father is God. But the Father is God, and God is the Lord. And so the argument, or the idea, goes on ad infinitum. The one God is the one Lord, and the one Lord is the one God, and Jesus is the one Lord. Therefore, Jesus is the one God. And this is the brilliant way that the apostles in the New Testament really affirm the doctrine of the Trinity before the word is used or formulated um, by Tertullian. I think Tertullian in the second century was the first person to use the word Trinity. Because what they're... What the apostles are trying to do are using titles and names, Lord and God, which can only be used of the one God. When you say the one Lord, only one being can be the one Lord. When you say the one God, only one being can be the one God. And they're taking those unique names and titles, and they are giving the Father the term God, and the Son, the term Lord, so that the terms of the one God are on two distinct persons, and they're using distinct titles so that we can see that the God is not the Lord in the sense that they're not the same person, so that we can always distinguish the Father from the Son, and the Son from the Father, and then the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord, so there's a distinguishment there, and so that we see the oneness in that only the one God can be the one Lord, and the one Lord can only be the one God, but the unity uh, that is in that distinction. And so I just find that every time I think on it, I think of how brilliantly the apostles use um, the scriptures and scriptural language to make a distinction. So the Son is the one Lord. Jesus of Nazareth, the historical person who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, had a teaching ministry for three years and was crucified, and we're going to talk about all of those wonderful things in future weeks. He is the one God, which is an incredible claim, but a necessary claim, because that's an issue of worship. Because if Jesus is not the one God... After God has said for all of Scripture, I'm the one God, you will only worship me. I'm the one God, you will only worship me. I won't give my name to another. I'm not going to give my glory to idols. Before me there is no God formed, and there shall be none after me. And then you get to the New Testament, and now God's whole covenant um, revelation of himself is completely undermined by the person of Jesus. Because here's Jesus receiving worship from people. Here's Jesus in the book of Revelation. Heaven and earth and things that are under the earth and in the sea are all giving him worship in the presence of the Father. And so if Jesus can share in the worship which belongs only to God, either God is a liar God is very confused. The Bible um, is inconsistent with itself. Or Jesus is, I love the term that the Nicene Creed uses, he's very God of very God. 
He's light of our light. He's true God of true God. The term Lord also refers to, I love what John Calvin says in the Institutes, because in uh, what we call post-Nicene Orthodoxy, so after the Council of Nicaea, you have a lot of focus on trying to reconcile the sonship of Christ and the fatherhood of Christ and making sure that we recognize their distinction because uh, though the Council of Nicaea triumphed over Arianism, which is the idea that the Son is only a creature um, created out of nothing and made subject uh, to the Father, but highly exalted, um, they wanted to respond to that in saying that they're equal, but there's also a high focus on making sure that we recognize the distinction between the persons in the Trinity because they didn't want to be modalists. They didn't want to say that, well, they're the one God and they're the same person. And so there's a high focus on what we call the eternal generation of the Son, which we'll talk about when we talk about the sonship of the Son. But uh, what Calvin wanted us to focus on is not only is his deity a generated deity, but Christ is what we call autotheos. I love that word. I just, I just like using that word because it sounds really fancy. But he's autotheos, which means that he is God in himself, which means Christ is not just, as we're going to talk about uh, here in a moment, he's not just the glory of God. But he is the God of glory, as James will call him, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, or the glorious Lord. He is not only the wisdom of God, as we will talk about, but he is also the wise God. He is not just the power of God, but he is the almighty God. And so, John Calvin wanted us to recognize, and I think it's an important thing that we recognize, he's not just derivative. That the love of God that is manifest in Jesus is not just the love of the Father through the conduit of Jesus, but Jesus himself, as a person, in and of himself, has a love for you, which is the Son's love, uniquely, apart from the Father's love. Now, then it gets convoluted, because we should never distinguish the persons of the Trinity such that one of the early church fathers, I think it was Chrysostom, says that the threeness should always bring us back to the oneness. And the oneness should always bring us back to the threeness. And so, the Lord of glory, which is Jesus Christ, who has glory in and of himself, finds his glory in the Father. And so, it, it, it all swirls. And it's kind of, it's, it, you can communicate it, but it is more than we can even really fathom, even though uh, to some extent we can communicate it. So not only is Christ the Lord, but he's also Christ. Um, and Christ is also a term that we, I think, misuse. I think because, you know, we grew up saying Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is God. And when I hear a lot of people talking about Jesus as the Christ and his ministry, um, a lot of people will automatically default to, well, Jesus did this because he was God. Or there was a really kitschy song back in like the 90s or the 80s. I send my sister YouTube clips of this song uh, because it's just so bad and it makes her angry whenever I send it to her. It's called, uh, He's the Messiah. 
He's the Messiah, woo, the Lord of heaven and earth. And so what you see in the song is he's the Messiah, and Messiah equals Lord. And that's not biblically what Messiah means. Most Jews would not have heard Lord, King of the universe, when they heard Messiah. Now, the Messiah is the King of the universe because the Messiah is the Son, and the Son is God. But let's not smooth it out systematically yet. There is a revelation about who the Messiah is. And uh, there was a gentleman that I was watching in preparation for this lesson who was talking about how in the Institutes, back to Calvin, uh, Calvin points out that we should not just consider the Messiahship of Jesus apart from the unique offices which he discharges as the Messiah. And I will let you pause for a moment and think about uh, what are the offices which the Lord Jesus discharges as the Messiah. We talked about this last, uh, last summer. So I'm going to play Blue's Clues while you think about it, and I'll see if you got it right. I hope your answer was that Christ... The offices that he exercises are prophet, priest, and king. It's called the munis triplex, the trifold office of Christ. And it's important that we look at his messiahship in light of those three offices because those offices give traction and feet to the purpose of the incarnation. That there is a reason more than just God wanted to demonstrate how smart he was in having full deity unite so mystically with humanity. Now, a part of the incarnation is the demonstration of God's wisdom, so I don't want to make light of that. But that's not all it is. The incarnation gives purpose. The incarnation, excuse me, has a purpose in that Christ took on flesh so that he might truly perform the office of prophet and perform the office of priest and perform the office of king. And that's important for us to know because if someone asks you, I watch a lot of debates between, I don't watch as many as I used to, um, but I've watched a lot of debates between Muslims and Christians. And one thing that Muslims will ask all the time is, well, see... The Bible says that Jesus says a prophet is uh, not honored in any, he's honored in every place except his own home. And so you see, Jesus identifies himself as a prophet. And, and Jesus says that he, he's the prophet that Moses said that would come after him. And of course, they believe actually that Muhammad is that, but we don't have to go there. Uh, and so how would you answer a question, how can Jesus, you say Jesus is God. We just finished talking about that. You say Jesus is the Lord. So how can he be a prophet? On whose behalf as a prophet is Jesus speaking? And you can't say that he's speaking on his own behalf as God. Because Jesus says in John 12, when I speak, I don't speak on my own behalf, but I speak on behalf of the Father. 
So how do we explain this? Is Jesus just as the Quran would have us to believe? Is he just a Rasulullah, a messenger of God? Is he just that? No. But he, according to uh, Philippians 2, he took on flesh, he humbled himself, he took on the form of a servant, and the Bible says emptied himself. That means he set aside those divine prerogatives which are his as God so that he could take on the true nature of a servant and therefore, being in the flesh, he serves God the Father as a servant. And so when he speaks, he speaks on behalf of the Father. Or when we look at his office as mediator, to whom does Christ mediate for us? He mediates to us, for us, to the Father. According to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, Jesus offered himself to God by the, well, excuse me, Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit without spot or blemish to God. To God. That his propitiatory offering is a triune work. It's a powerful term. It's powerful. And so it gives traction. His kingship. How do you make sense of in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, when the Bible says that Jesus will give up the kingdom to the Father? Okay, I thought, why does he have to give it up? I thought he was God. Why does he give up the kingdom? It's because the kingdom that he's giving up is the kingdom that he purchased by his blood based upon his incarnation and his union with his people. And as a servant, he renders up the kingdom to his father. So profound, so important, that as Hebrews 2 says, it says that um, God made Christ a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That is his mediatorial work. That he might taste, he, and he uh, crowned him with glory and honor, that he might taste death for every man. That's his mediatorial work. For it pleased him for all things, and through, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That, the captain, that's a, or chief, that's his kingly uh, role in office. For he that sanctifies... And those who are sanctified are all of one. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name in the midst of my brethren. And in the midst of, to my brethren, and in the midst of the church, I will sing praise to thee. That is his prophetic office on display. That he took on flesh so that he might be, as Francis Turretin points out in his Institutes of Elenchic Theology, which I really want, but it's super expensive, and so we're going to have to wait a few years to get that one. But in his Institutes of Elenchic Theology, Francis Turretin says, Jesus takes on flesh and executes the offices of the Messiah so that he can be the triple cure for what ails us as sinful human beings. That our problem in the flesh has fallen in Adam is that we are ignorant of the law of God because we suppress the law of God. We suppress the knowledge of God and the truth of God in unrighteousness. We are futile in our thinking. We've been blinded by the God of this world. And the list goes on. And as a prophet, Jesus reveals God to us by his word 
and his spirit. And not only are we ignorant, but we are guilty of making infractions against the divine law and transgressing God's law. And therefore, Jesus cures our sin guiltiness by being the propitiation for our sins, not just uh, the priest who offers the sacrifice, but he himself is also the sacrifice. He, it's so beautiful how Christ fulfills all of the various types. One of my favorite sections of Scripture is in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers where the Bible is describing the temple because it shows the complexity. It shows a sliver of the complexity of what Jesus has done for us, that he's the priest, and that he's the offering, and that he's the temple, and that he's, the, he's just everything for us, and that is because he makes us right and whole and pure so that we can enter in by his flesh, which the Bible says is the veil. His flesh becomes the, the veil, the holy of holies. And Jesus is king to subdue our corruption. That Jesus has come and has conquered us. And he has disbanded all of our armies of, of, and of enmity against him. He has deposed the authorities of rebellion in our hearts and minds. He has dissolved the parliaments of our reason and all of our craftiness and cunning. He has subdued it. He has put to naught the wisdom of the wise. He's taken men captive. As a matter of fact, uh, the most quoted psalm, well, I think it's the most quoted Old pas passage, uh, Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110, you should read it. It talks about, um, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And that's where it says, um, the Lord has sworn and not repent. Uh, that's one of my alarms in the morning when I wake up. I have a little midi that has voices, and it's from Handel's uh, Dixit. And it's, Juravit, et non non penite, et non non penite. And it's pretty awesome. But um, it's one of my favorite uh, songs. And what it's saying is, not only is, has the Lord said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies your footstool, but then it talks about how this messianic figure, this kingly priest and this priestly king, it, if you read the whole psalm, it says, and he crushes the heads of kings and he dashes them. And that's what Jesus does to us when he conquers us for himself. And, and we should thank him for that because he... That's what we need. That's what I need when my, as the hymn says, when my soul is prone to wander, what I need is not just a Jesus who's, oh, trying to woo me back and he's trying as hard as he can, but he can't overcome my free will. No, 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 no. I need a Jesus who will rule me by his spirit and his word and bring me back to his fold again. And Jesus became incarnate. And he exercises his office as Christ in doing that for his church. And then, of course, he, we talked about last year about the two kingdoms of Christ, his, his reign of power, uh, the regna potentia, and then his regnum uh, gratia, 
Oh, it's the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of power that he has authority in himself as God to rule all things. And then he has the specific uh, rule over his church, which he exercises by virtue of his incarnation and his union, our union to him by the Spirit. And because, this is an important word, we talked about Philippians uh, 2, which is where we get the doctrine of kenosis, which is the um, emptying, Christ emptying himself. So Christ is the kenotic man, and he is the theanthropos, which means that he is the thea, God, anthropos, man. So he's the God-man. And so because he's the God-man, there is a wonderful tension between Christ does things and models a life which we are able to live because Christ was truly a man. So Christ could pray, uh, like a, as a mediator, Christ could pray. Christ can um, make offering, mainly offerings of prayer, and do the things that we do as priests, because we're called saints and kings and priests to God. Christ does that. Um, as a prophet, Christ preach, preaches and preached the word with boldness. He rebuked people. Um, he called them on their sin. He was salt and light and, and is in, in his church. And so we are called to do that, and, and Christ models that for us. And he, as a king, exercises authority over uh, even demonic powers, exercises authority in the church, so that when our elders, we elders act as king uh, in that capacity, when they do things like church discipline, or whenever they do their things of ruling in the church, or uh, when you have a home that is a Christian home, and parents are governing over their family, they are representing Christ in that capacity. And so as Christ is truly human, we can participate in, that, in what he participates, but because he is also the God-man, because he is also the monogame, blah, 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 the monogamous theos, there are things that only Jesus can do. I love that Morgan Weiss, in our small group, uh, she says sometimes, you know, she says exactly what I said. Because he's Jesus, there are things that only you can do. And that's why we put our faith in him and our trust in him, because he does not... It's really important that we recognize that the Christ anointing, the trifled office which Christ has, is something that is unique to him. It's not that Christ is just a man and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, like some people, like Kenneth Copeland, have taught. Or there's a, a cult in South, that's developing in South America right now um, called Christ and Me that says that the Christ is this principle that exists out there, and Jesus Christ was just a man who was then indwelt by this divine Christ principle. And so, gee, you can be just like Jesus if you just get in step with the Holy Spirit and you'll be indwelt by the Christ principle and you can be a Christ. No, you can't. Because the Christ is the unique intervention of the unique Son of God, God the Son, entering into creation and having a unique anointing to do what the Father had predestined for him to do before the world began. So in our last uh, section of time, looks like I have about nine minutes to talk about what it means for 
the sun to be the sun, and I've waxed long on my earlier topics, more than I planned on. Because I'm ne- okay, so let's jump into this, uh, because I want to talk about what it means, um, the relationship between the Father and the Son. And I want to start talking about that by saying what the Son is not, what we do not mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God. First of all, and this might come as obvious to you, but uh, it may be not in the sense that you would have never thought about this. I know I never thought about it until I was confronted by it um, when I heard what certain people think that Christians believe and what certain heretical groups believe about what the Son is. Firstly, we do not believe that the Son is the Son of God because He was sired by some sort of sexual union between God the Father and the Virgin Mary. Um, uh, Islam, in in the Quran, that seems to be the author of the Quran's um, understanding of what we say when we say that Jesus is the Son. I think it's in Surah Al-Maryam, maybe Surah Al-Maida, um, or maybe Surah Al-Yunus. It's in, the, it's in the Quran somewhere. It is in the Quran. Um, it says, uh, God, Allah, has, I think it's Surah Al-Yunus. It says, God has not begotten a son. If God wanted to beget a son, he could, how, he could take anything that he has created But, how can Allah have a son, seeing as he does not have a consort, or a wife? It's actually kind of a derogatory term. It's how can he have a uh, son, seeing as he doesn't have a girlfriend? Which is obviously saying that that the author of the Quran thought that what Christians were saying about Jesus is that God took a wife or a girlfriend and then copulated with her and then um, produced a son as a byproduct of sexual coition. Um, And that's not what we believe. Unfortunately, there are some, as I've said, heretical groups who do believe that. Um, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, for years, not not every Mormon might might not believe this or know that this has been taught, but it's not not a secret doctrine by any stretch of the imagination uh, in the Mormon Church. They believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, so that the reason why he is unique from every other person, because if you know anything about Mormon theology, they believe we're all sons and daughters of God, because we're all his spirit children. And Jesus is the prototokos, he's the firstborn, literally, uh, of God the Father and one of his many spirit wives. He's God's firstborn. And then, as a byproduct of... um, Not only is he the firstborn, excuse me... uh, But Jesus is unique in our incarnation because the Father, who is a resurrected and glorified uh, man from another planet, um, had sex with Mary and then produces the life of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is immortal, because he has an immortal Father. Um, That is pretty much the doctrine of the incarnation in um, Mormonism, and we don't believe that. We, We don't believe that. Second of all, we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God by virtue of adoption. Which means that Jesus was not simply a man. When Mary gave birth, she didn't just give birth to a human being 
who later on, usually adoptionists, and this is an ancient heresy, adoptionists would say that Jesus was just a really godly person, um, and God was really pleased with him. And so the Son, this divine principle, kind of scooped Jesus up and swallowed him up in the divinity, and then he became the Son of God. So that there is, so that the incarnation happened after, uh, not, yeah, the incarnation and the hypostatic union uh, happened after the birth of Jesus. That Jesus is a man, and then it's what we call, uh, basically it's the idea that there are two persons, that Jesus is two persons, as opposed to two natures in one person. I can't remember what you call that heresy. But we believe he's one person with two natures. That's the hypostatic union. That in the one hypostasis, or person of Christ, there are two natures that exist side by side, truly one, united with one another, but not being confused with one another or intermixed with one another, or becoming some sort of new nature. Um, we believe when we talk about Jesus Christ being the Son. Oh, this is also important. Jesus Christ's sonship is not a temporal reality. In, in, in a sense, his sonship is a temporal reality in that he's the Son of God because humans are sons of God. And when he became man, he became a son of God in that he was human. And he became the Son of God in the sense that when he was baptized and he was christened or anointed as the King of Israel, he became the Son of God. But when we talk about the Son of God, the unique, only begottenness of the Son, that is not a temporal reality. That is an eternal relationship, which theologians have called generation. And generation, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1. I think that this describes generation really well, and I love this passage of Scripture. We'll start at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, here it is, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now notice what Paul says. This is Paul's argument. Before the effectual calling... A person looks at Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and like we said earlier in the lesson, and he looks just like an ordinary person who was crucified. He looks just like a Jew who was crucified, and crucifixion, of course, is the most reviling way that a person can die. And so he's just weak, he's pitiful, he, he's, he's foolish, anyone who follows after him is foolishness, is foolish. And when the Holy Ghost comes into your life, and transforms you, he gives you power to see Jesus as he really is. And note what Paul says. He doesn't say that Christ is powerful. 
He doesn't say that Christ is wise. He says, uh, to, to those who are called Christ, the very wise person, and Christ, a very strong person. No, 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 no. He says, Christ, the power of God. God's very own power. And Christ, the wisdom of God. Christ's, excuse me, God's very own wisdom. He is the power which belongs to God. Which is what kind of power? All power. And He is the wisdom that belongs to God. What kind of wisdom is that? That's omniscient wisdom. And that is who Christ is. Now notice this. This, this um, suggests a relationship between the Father and the Son. Because he, he is not in this passage. Now we have already said He is the wise God. But notice with relationship to the Father, who is called God here, He is the wisdom who belongs to God. Now, how long has God been wise the proper answer is from all of eternity he has been wise. How long has God been strong? The proper answer is from all of eternity God has been strong. So that as long as the Father has been wise, the Son has been there to be the wisdom of God. And as long as the did I say strong and wise? Anyway, you know what I'm saying. As long as the Father has been strong, the Son has been there to be the power of God. And note this, that these relationships are not temporal in nature, and they're not ontological in nature. Now, what do I mean by that? Because God has been powerful from all of eternity. Now, the Father is the one who is the powerful one. The Son is His power. But that power has to be eternal, so that there is no point at which the Son, being the power of God, did not exist. Does that make sense? God being wise, it's not a temporal relationship, because if there was any point in time in which the Son did not exist, that would mean that there was a point in time which God would not be God, because God wouldn't be wise. The same thing Hebrews 1 says that, uh, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. God has been glorious from all of eternity, and so that's the same idea. So it's not a temporal relationship, so it can't be there was a time when the sun was not, as Arius stated. And also, it is not a ontological relationship, because, and this can't be said of a creature, the Father requires the existence of the Son to be God. If the Father is glorious, He is glorious through the Son. Does that make sense? If the Father is powerful, He's powerful through the Son. And that's the only way, I would argue, that the Father's power can be exerted. That's the only way that the Father's wisdom can, that the Father can know things. That's the only way that the Father can be glorious. It's through the Son. And this relationship of the Father producing or being the fountainhead of the divine attributes is called eternal generation. Which is really funny because in the book that we're reading um, that uh, Scott and Drew and Ryan uh, are reading and uh, Mac are reading, it's uh, by G.I. Packer, J.I. Packer, 
um, J.I. Packer is like, oh yeah, the eternal generation is a wonderful idea. And I'm reading uh, Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin, and Walter Martin is like, yeah, I don't believe in eternal generation. It was started by origin, and it, it became the foundation of so much heresy. And so it's just interesting how men on different sides view the doctrine. I believe in the doctrine of eternal generation uh, because it demonstrates the uniqueness of Christ in the divine essence itself as well as the full deity of Christ. Now, what's the significance of this doctrine? And we're going to close. I only have a few minutes. And I'm going to focus on one thing in particular because there was a Muslim who asked the question, um, how can it be that God shows his love by giving his son? Doesn't that make God a coward? Um, let me read some quotes. If I can find my notes, Lord have mercy. Let me find some quotes. Because to us, we've been reading these scriptures all of our lives, right? It says, For God so loved the world. Tell me how this is an expression of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you're saying to me that God gave his Son... And God giving His Son is a demonstration of how much God loves us. Or, in Romans 5, But God commends His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, not God, Christ died for us. Or, Romans 8, 31-32, What shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? I've gone over my time, but let me speedily summarize these points. The argument that the Muslim gentleman was making was, it is cowardice for God to give his son and not himself come for our sins. Now, why is that not the case? What's the difference? And I've used Matthew Vincent as an example since I taught this. So what's the difference between Matthew, uh, Ryan Vincent giving Matthew as a, as a sacrifice and the father giving the son as a sacrifice? And I have three reasons. First, Romans 8, 31 30, and 32 give it away in part, is that God considers the Son to be more valuable than everything. That's the only way that the logic of Romans 8, 31 and 32 would work. He's saying, if God will give you His Son, He'll give you everything. Which means that He has given us something that He values more than every atom in the universe. He's saying, if God gave you His Son, He'll give you the world. If God gave you the Son, He'll give you the universe. If God gave you the Son, there's nothing He will withhold from those who walk up rightly before Him. How do we know that? Because Christ to God is more valuable. Now, that cannot be said of any spirit creature that's highly exalted. Because... A highly exalted spirit creature, I don't care how highly exalted it is, that spirit creature is expendable. 
because God can make another one just like it and exalt that spirit creature as high as he wants to. So the uniqueness, the preciousness of Jesus, the preciousness of his son, the uniqueness of his son is, makes him so valuable to the Father that it's a down payment guarantee that everything will be ours in the age to come. Secondly, and I wish I had time to break down um, the love of benevolence, beneficence, and complacency, but we'll just talk about how God, when He looks at the Son, God's love for the Son is not like His love for the rest of creation. The love with which God the Father loves the Son is the love which God the Father has for himself. Because the book of Hebrews says that Christ is the refulgence of the glory of God, the express image of his person. Christ is the fairest of 10,000. He is unique. There is no one like him. If you can say that that is a miracle has been wrought in your heart. And when God looks at the Son, God cannot not love the Son, because the Son is in Himself altogether lovely. And so, when God gives the Son, I was just reading Hilary of Poitiers, and right after I had taught this on, on uh, Wednesday, last, last Wednesday, um, when God gives the Son, it's unlike with Ryan Vincent giving Matthew, when Ryan gives Matthew, Ryan's love turns from Matthew onto himself in self-preservation. When God gives his son, it is literally a token of his love. And lastly, the son is... uh, Oh, God loves the son with the complacent love, and he gives the son... Because those who are united to him become the objects of the love of God which he has for his Son. Because the Son is the eternal object of the love of the Father, the Son and all of those who are joined to the Son receive the love of the Father. Every other kind of love in this world has a cap to it but the love of God in Christ Jesus will never end. Let's read this passage from John uh, 17, and I'll close. It says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Notice the union, the union talk here. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The sending idea. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may be perfect in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me. And I loved them. Now note this. Even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, 
For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in you. When you take away the distinction of the Son and the Father, you lose the infinite love of complacency which the Father has for the Son. You lose the eternal intensity of love which will never have a cap. Oh, may we experience that love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.